Thank you, Deacon Wesley, for reading God's Word for us. And thank you, Yin, for leading us uh, through uh, song. And uh, you don't see it, but uh, I want to thank the uh, musicians who are here with us today and the tech team to uh, making this possible, um, enabling us to be able to uh, stream this out on YouTube. Today, we continue a series of studies from the book of Exodus. And today, we will be, will be looking at Exodus chapter 15. If you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to just keep it open there. Now, I was in a high school that took basketball seriously. Each year, my school took part in an inter, inter-school basketball match where competing schools invest a lot of training to vie for the championship. Now, my school's basketball team would practice rigorous, rigorously every day after school until the evening. And for those of us who do not qualify as basketball players because You can only have so much in a team. Those of us who didn't make it could uh, actually join the cheering squad. And so there we were, the rest of us, in the bleacher, cheering, shouting at the beat of the drums. And when the buzzer finally sounded to end the game in our favor, we would all jump to our feet to celebrate our victory. And what else did we do? Well, we would all stand up and sing the school song. And it was that moment when the whole gymnasium was quiet and all one could hear were young voices singing proudly, singing victoriously the school song. Exodus chapter 15 records for us a victory song that was sung at the end of a match. At the end of a showdown between competing powers, on one corner you have Pharaoh, his gods, his magicians, his powerful army, his weaponry, lumped together against one opponent on the other corner, Israel's God, the Lord. Now the previous chapters recorded for us a series of showdowns where the Lord was always leading in the score. But like all good uh, series of showdowns, like all good stories, the final match was not without suspense. So God's people, we are told, assembled in front of the Red Sea. The Egyptians who had earlier conceded defeat, who had let them go, who even gave them jewelry, now had a change of heart. They had a change of mind. And so they chased Israel from behind. Will the score now change in favor of the Egyptians? Will the tables turn? Now we all know the answer. No one can beat the Lord. No one can match the Lord's power. Moses stretches his hand toward the sea and the waters miraculously divided. And the people crossed on dry land. And the same waters that open up for God's people to cross, these same waters join together to cover and obliterate the Egyptian army. Not one of them remained, we are told. And Israel that day saw with their very own eyes the power of the Lord, and it led them to fear the Lord. 
It is just fitting that a national celebration follow their victorious and miraculous crossing of the Red Sea to celebrate their freedom from centuries of bondage. Exodus chapter 15 contains, if I may, the people's National Day song. It is their Independence Day song, their victory song. Exodus chapter 15 happens also to be the first ever recorded song in the Bible. And yet, it is more than just a victory song or a freedom song or an independence song. It is a song that sings of their victor, the Lord, a song that is sung to their victor. It is a song that sings of God's wondrous works, His character, His promises. So what wondrous works do Moses and the people sing of the Lord? Now surely they have witnessed a lot, and one song is not going to do justice. And so in this song, it is centered on the miraculous crossing of the Red Sea. And in their crossing, they saw how the Lord won. First slide comes up. The Lord threw every horse and chariot driver into the sea. The Lord dunked the decorated generals of Pharaoh and submerged them in the floods. The Lord disintegrated whoever opposed him. He overthrew them. He wiped them clean. He threshed them. And the Israelites saw with their own eyes how the Lord blew a dry path in the sea, solidifying the waters. So we read in chapter 14, and the slide comes up. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on the right hand and on their left. And after about, or rather over 600,000 of them had crossed safely, we read that the waters returned, next slide, returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them Remain. It was a miraculous sight never to be forgotten by Israel because it displayed the might of the waters, the might of the Egyptian armies that were both tamed by the might of the Lord. Now, anybody who's been to the waters would know its might. I, for one, Never liked the waters, so swimming pool alone scares me. I hated the water pressure I feel around me every time I make a dip, each time I get a, uh, get a dip. And so imagine my fear magnified when I crossed a river during one mission trip many, many years back. And so there I was, my hands on the wheels of a Mitsubishi van, Carrying a group of teens, I tried to put on a brave front to drive through the river. Because, you know, many things could go wrong crossing the river. 
For one, my front-wheel drive may get buried and stuck in an unseen pit, or my carburetor may get wet and the engine would die, or the strong current of the river may veer us away from the route that was supposed to get us to the bank across. Many things could grow wrong crossing just a river. How much more things could have gone wrong as Israel was crossing the Red Sea? But the Lord tamed the might of the sea. He crushed the might of Pharaoh's armies. That is why the people sing of the Lord's shattering his enemies, consuming them all like stubble, which is probably the image of the eighth plague when the Lord sent swarms of locusts that devoured plants, fruits, every green thing in Egypt. And such is the wondrous work of the Lord for his people against his enemies. Such is what they sing of the Lord. Then moving on, then they also sang of the Lord's character. They sing, slide comes up, of the Lord's strength, that he is their savior who rescued them from the Egyptians. They proclaim that he is their father's God and not just some new God on the block. They sing of him as the warrior whose name is the Lord, self-existent and eternal. He is great and majestic, causing awe to all who witnessed his work. There is no one like the Lord. And lastly, they sing of his covenantal love, which is unchanging and unwavering. Now, what led the people to sing of the Lord's characters? What led them to sing of his, of his qualities? Well, I think, of, I think it's probably his salvation, his rescue, which both reminded and revealed to them facets of God. Firstly, it undoubtedly showed them that God is strong, that he is able. You know, have you ever tried rescuing somebody. Now, we all love rescue stories, don't we? We tuned in to the rescue of the trapped miners in Peru many, many years ago. We followed the news of the rescue of football players who were trapped inside a cave in Thailand. We love rescue stories. And can I say that we all love to take some part in a rescue? See, I once saw a car uh, parked dangerously on the side of the road. Well, the driver had a flat tire. And so I went on to rescue mode. I parked my car. I pulled out my tire wrench and walked towards the driver with music from Mission Impossible playing on my head. But it turns out that my tire wrench is useless. You know why? because the man's car was European, and EU cars have different nut size from Japanese cars. It was a rescue fail. Now, surely we all have more rescue fails than successful rescues. But no matter how glorious 
our successful rescue experience is, it pales. It pales in comparison to the Lord's rescue. Why so? Because the Lord single-handedly brought about more than 600,000 people from the mighty Egyptians. This single rescue event showcased the Lord's incomparable strength. He is strong. He is a strong warrior, and no army can stand against him. He is awesome, which actually means fearsome and terrifying. Now, this is very important because we live at a time when we have diluted the word awesome when we describe pizza or hamburger. But God's rescue act shows that he is strong, awesome, fearful warrior without equal. And yet, the Lord does not rescue just to show off. It's not for show of strength, and that's it. He rescues because of his covenantal promise to the forefathers. The Lord did tell Abraham centuries before, slide comes up, he tells Abraham, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. The strong, matchless Savior Lord is the God of their fathers, truly. And his covenantal promise to Abraham is a result of his steadfast love to his people. Now, steadfast love refers to the loyalty, to the devotion that God shows his people. It is a love that is, as one singer puts it, stubborn, stubborn love. God won't let go. God won't give up. It is stubborn. And it is a love that endures forever, which means there's no shelf life. It's bottomless. It's perpetual. It cannot be made void. That is the steadfast love of God. And so he rescues people to himself, not by merit, but because of God's sheer love and grace. I mean, his adoption of 600,000 men plus their families for himself speaks already of his steadfast love. And so when one sings of God's wondrous work, one is led to sing also of his character, of his attributes. Lastly, God's people here in Exodus chapter 15 sing of the Lord's promises. How the Lord guided his people to himself. They also sang of the wicked nations trembling in fear, their hearts melting away. They sang too of the assurance that the Lord will plant his people in his home. 
So here's a Bible verse slide comes up. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble, pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. And you will bring them, next slide, you will bring them in and plant them on your own, on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. Now, what is interesting with the promises that they sing is that, notice, they sing of the promise as if they've already materialized. Did you notice that? For instance, how could they have known that Israel's enemies, which were all named in this song, how could they have known uh, the enemy's response, the dread that they feel over how, how their hearts have melted when the people at this point have yet to encounter them. Now we have the benefit of hindsight uh, um, when we shall know later when we read the book of Joshua that Rahab testified herself of the people, of her people, melting in fear because they heard of what the Lord had done. But that incident of Rahab's testimony is about 40 years down the road. See, up to this point, Israel has yet to enter Canaan. And so how could they have sung of the enemy's terrified response? And so it is for this reason that some scholars, commentators, they, have, they propose that these verses, verses 13 to 16, may have well been a later addition to the song. You know, like songwriters who would cut a new release or write an extended version of the original. To see this song containing a later addition does make sense. But if we were to stick to the author's intention at this point, it seems that the purpose here was to tell his readers, his listeners, that when we declare God's wondrous works and his character, it must follow that we confidently sing of his promises, whether they have materialized or not. Because God is true to his word and his incomparable power assures them. After all, why sing of the glorious past if the message have no bearing on the present? Or if it does not promise hope for the future? When we sing of God's wondrous work in the past, when we sing of His never, ever changing character, we sing of them because they have relevance on the present. They are pertinent today, and they shall endure to the morrow and the far future.
That is why we can sing of the certainty of God's promises. For Israel, God's wondrous works and his character must assure them that the Lord shall provide them their needs. Who God is and what he has done should assure them that when they meet enemies as they enter Canaan, this God, this same Lord, this fearsome man of war will fight the battle for them. And so having sung victoriously their praise song to the Lord, uh, they can journey. They can journey on trusting in the Lord who rescued them with his might and protected them by his presence. But life as we know it does not always hum to a celebrative and victorious beat. In the next sermon that the preacher will give next week, we shall look at Israel's journey to the promised land, and we shall see God's people facing challenges and hurdles, the lack of food, the lack of water, and those challenges shortened the celebration. Those difficulties silenced singing voices. Those hardships hung their instruments, kept all their tambourines. And you could say that the celebration here in chapter 15 turned into a demonstration in chapter 16. As the people vented their anger at Moses and at God. Now, a week ago, the kids and I watched the movie, I Still Believe. It is a true-to-life story of contemporary Christian music singer, Jeremy Kemp. Spoiler alert, Jeremy lost his wife, Melissa, to ovarian cancer a few months after their wedding, and it shook his faith. He smashed his guitar. He, it made him angry at God, at the God he sings of, at the same God he sings to. And yet, despite his tragic loss, Jeremy wrote the song, I Still Believe. And this, he says, is the first song that the Lord gave me after the passing of my wife. I remember, he says, one night the Lord speaking to my heart to sit down and write a song, and I really didn't feel like writing at that time, but the tug was too strong. The whole basis of the song is that no matter what happens in your life or how devastating a situation may be, God is still on the throne and everything in his word is true. Now, I wish I could uh, show you a clip from that movie, but we do not have permission. So I recommend that you watch it tonight from iTunes. It's just $4.98 to rent it. When life is tough, will you continue to sing of what God's wondrous works
His character, His promises? Will you declare with Jeremy Camp and say, I still believe? That was the whole purpose of this song in Exodus 15. For the Israelites to continue to sing, to teach, to admonish one another when life seemed to say God is nowhere to be found, that God has abandoned you, that He has lost control. No! He is still on the throne. He is sticking to His promise. He is with you. If only Israel continued to sing of this, if only, then their grumbling would have turned into thanksgiving. Because songs sung to the Lord stir a response. They lift up a downcast spirit and they spur you to faith and obedience. No wonder we are called to teach and admonish one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual th songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. Colossians chapter 3. Brothers and sisters, we need to make the Lord our song. Now personally, the past few months have been so difficult for my family. But Anna and I hung on to God, listening every night to the song, As long as you are glorified. So the song says, Shall I take from your hand your blessings, yet not welcome any pain? Shall I thank you for days of sunshine, yet grumble in days of rain? Shall I love you in times of plenty, then leave you in days of drought? Shall I trust when I reap a harvest, but when winter winds blow, then doubt? No, but let your will be done in me. In your love, I will abide. And it ends with the line, Oh, I long for nothing else as long as you are glorified. This song echoes Job, Job's response when God took away everything he had. He says, shall we accept only good from God and not evil? And this song, as long as you are glorified, strengthened us because it made us look to God's faithfulness. He has been faithful in the past. He shall remain so in the present, tomorrow and in the future. And we look forward to the promised return of His Son when He shall make all things new. Because His Word promises of the day when the dwelling of God is with men and He will live with them. He will wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Because the Lamb, the Lord Jesus, has purchased us for Himself 
through his death on the cross, forgiving us and reconciling us with the Father. Do you sing of the Lord's wondrous work? Do you sing of his unchanging character? Do you sing of his promises? I pray that you all do. You know, and if it helps, here's a playlist that I have compiled for, for this sermon. Have a listen and share with others. Why? Because we must not stop. We must not let anything stop and keep us from making the Lord our song. Let us pray. Father, when times are difficult, empower us to sing to you, to sing of you, of your wondrous works, of your never-changing character, and of your promises that we are certain is going to materialize because you are faithful. Help us to sing of this, not only to you, but to one another, as we encourage one another to cling on to you, to hold on to you, while we await of the glorious return of your Son, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. For in his name we pray. Amen.